We are continuing in the book of James today. And today's message is called Straight Talk About BFFs, Part 2. Part 2, and you're wondering, what? I don't remember Part 1. And you're right, we haven't done Part 1. That was a plan. Pastor Down is going to preach. He's going to talk about Part 1 today. And I was going to do Part 2 next week, but since things kind of got interesting... Uh, we switched it around a little bit. So we're going to do part two first, and we're hoping he'll be back next week to do part one. So if everything doesn't flow exactly right, I'm sorry. Stay with us. We're doing the best we can, okay? All right. Well, I think most of us have heard the story of, of two friends who were camping in the woods. As they're, they're sitting there and drinking their morning coffee, they begin to hear some rustling in the bushes nearby, and out comes this big grizzly bear coming right towards them, right? And one of the men immediately starts putting on his running shoes, and his buddy turns him and looks, and says, what are you doing? You cannot run a grizzly bear. And of course his friend said, I don't need to. All I have to do is outrun you. <laughs> Everybody heard that? Yeah. yeah. Friends are great, aren't they? It's in times of crisis, I think, when they find out who our real friends are. Hopefully we don't get stuck with a person like that in a moment of crisis. Um, but our text today is on James. And James, as we have discovered as we've walked through this book, is about making our faith visible. Show me, he says. I will show you my faith by what I do. And we're shown how faith manifests itself by the way that we handle tests and trials and temptations in not only hearing but in also doing the word of God by not showing favoritism by watching the words that are coming out of our mouths. And in the last few weeks, we jumped ahead to chapter 5, where we looked at our money and our possessions. And so this week, we're kind of going back to chapter 4, and we're going to look at another test of visible faith. Who are we friends with? So let's take a look at our text today. I'm going to ask you to stand up, and we're going to read it together. I just sat down. This is good. Keep you awake. Okay, James 4, 1 through 6. Let's read together. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank you. You may be seated. What a great passage to preach on, huh? This is another, it's another tough passage from James. It's kind of scathing in a lot of ways. James identifies the characteristics in the lives of those who are friends with the world. 
Now, in this passage, the world does not refer to planet Earth, but to the fallen and selfish, prideful, corrupt, sinful system headed up by Satan, who Paul identifies as the god of this world. Friendship of the world is characterized by fighting and by quarreling. And the fighting, James says, comes from the evil desires within us, desires that are rooted in jealousy and selfishness. And we don't have to try and imagine what that looks like because we see it everywhere we go, don't we? We see it just turning on the news or just looking out our window. We have global, national conflicts all over the place, political turmoil. Just a couple weeks ago, just a side note here, I actually I learned what the word politics means. It actually, believe it or not, it comes from two words. Uh, one is poly, which is Greek for many, and the other word is ticks, which are blood-sucking insects. <laughs> so when you put them together, you have many blood-sucking insects. <laughs> yeah. Some of you are like, it all makes sense now. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to you. So you have national conflicts, you have political turmoil, uh, we have lots of racial divisions, uh, tensions between young and old, rich and poor. And looking within our own circles, we see a breakup in the family. And it's just getting worse and worse. Husbands and wives are getting divorced because the grass looks greener on the other side, and each one is too busy looking at their own needs and not the needs of their spouse. Parents are acting out of their own selfish desires, putting their children at risk, conniving and strategizing how they can make things better for themselves even when it hurts those that they love. Right? We see that. If I were to ask for a raise of hands, how many of you would say that you have been affected by this in some way? Just about everybody. Probably everybody. And this is the fruit of those who have a friendship with the world. And what James clearly lays out here, and perhaps a little uncomfortably, is that we cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. He even says, and he repeats it, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And that's pretty tough. And we're talking about friendship with God. And you know, when you start talking about friendship, or we start talking about God with this context of friendship, there's a lot of people that don't really get what that means. They don't get it. You know? Because a lot of people see God as this big figure up in the sky with a bunch of lightning bolts in his hand and he's ready to blast you as soon as you do something wrong. Right? There are. And case in point, I'm going to pick on you, Mary. You know, I, I, I kind of oversee the worship area. And, you know, I, I like to have fun. I do. And it's all in fun. And sometimes I might say things that they're not exactly true you know, they, they might be off a little bit. You know, it's not a lie, but it's just, you know, just kind of be funny. And if Mary Kerwin is standing next to me at the time when I do that, she will make a big step away from me because she doesn't want to get blasted by the bolt of lightning that God's going <laughs> to send my way, right? Yeah, you can't deny it. <laughs> but that's not the way it is. God is, and he's always been about relationship. He's always been about relationship. His purpose from the very beginning was to create a family. And mankind was created to be image bearers of God. We were created to walk with God, to be friends of God. 
And in the very first chapter of Genesis, you read that God created human beings in his image, male and female, and we were to extend his rule into all the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, God said. Fill the earth and govern it. But Adam fell. And with that, mankind became corrupted by sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We became selfish. We became corrupt. We were wicked. And mankind had failed. It ruined that picture. But then when Jesus comes back into the picture, God restores his original purpose. He restores his original purpose. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now go and make disciples. His method of family, it may have changed a little bit, but it was restored. And as he sends his disciples, as he sent them, and this promise exists for you and me, he said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is and always has been about relationship. However, there is a choice before us. There's a choice before us. We can have relationship with God. We can be friends with God. Or we can be friends with the world. And again, there's no in-between. There isn't any middle ground. Yeah, how many of us sometimes trying to find ourselves, trying to balance on this line between one or the other? Or we have maybe have one foot in on this side, and we have one foot on the other line, and we kind of, I want God, I want you, but I want this too. Just give both. I want it all. Right? Anybody? I know I'm not the only one. Yeah, we have this tendency. But James says it doesn't, that's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way. You're either on one side or the other. And even, he even conjures up the word adulterers. Adulterers. You adulterers. And that's pretty harsh. And this gives us an Old Testament image when God repeatedly referred to Israel as adulterers because they were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping other gods when they should have been worshiping him. And he called them adulterers time and time again. And James put, he puts his friendship with the world at the same level as an adulterous affair. So by being a friend of the world, we are unfaithful to God. We are cheating on God. And once again, James looks at our actions. He looks at our actions in determining whether or not we're a friend of God or we're a friend of the world. Being friends of the world is characterized by fighting, by continued conflict, by quarreling. And the thing to remember is, too, that James is speaking to the Jewish Christians at that time. He's not talking to people in the world. He's talking to Jewish Christians at the time. And the Apostle Paul makes some very similar statements that James does in Corinthians. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? And so we do see this behavior within the church. And for a number of reasons. Number one, not to offend anybody here, but we have immature Christians. 
immature Christians. That picture says it all. And some of you are like, what? Really? Right. And I, I know there's a couple of people that are kind of pointing to your neighbor. It's, it's him. It's him. I saw him going into the liquor store at Piggly Wiggly. It's that guy. Right? He was speeding. That is against the law. Right, Dustin? <laughs> he perked up when I said that. He's like, oh, I'm going to get him. Yeah. But you know what? A lot of people call themselves mature simply because they know a lot about the Bible or because they've been coming to church for a long time. But knowledge doesn't make you mature. It has nothing to do with your maturity. Your actions determine that. You can know all about the Bible. The devil knows all about the Bible. Right? But it's your actions that define your maturity. Number two, believe it or not, we actually have unsaved people that go to church. Isn't that crazy? But uh, I know that's surprising to some, but going to church does not a Christian make. And I actually have a friend who is a pastor, and he tells his congregation repeatedly, like, you know, I don't care if you come to church on Sundays. I don't care. What I'm more concerned about with what you're doing the other six days of the week. Because it's a lifestyle. And some of us, we will go to church and put on our Christian persona on Sunday mornings, but then the other six days of the week, we're living a whole different life. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And some of us are mature. At least we like to think so. But we still have a sinful nature that we will have until Jesus comes back again. And sometimes we want to revert back into that worldly mindset and that worldly system and start looking at the small picture. And I I do want to clarify something here before we go on. We're talking about friendship with the world, right? It's kind of a hard message. A friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. But I want you to know that if you're a believer, if you're born again, if you've been saved, if God has set you free, you cannot be an enemy of God. Okay? That's got to be clear. You cannot be an enemy because you have been forgiven, you have been set free, you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and you are a child of God. All right? But there's a difference. And those of us, like I said, who are saved still have a sinful nature, and we have our tenants revert back into this worldly mindset. The Apostle Paul describes this as a war that is raging within the life of the believer. If we look at Ephesians, he says that the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. And that's why he says in the previous verse, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. And he continues in the same passage, in verse 19 through 21. He says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And again, this is a picture of what being friends with the world looks like. Friendship with the world puts us in conflict with one another. It puts us in conflict with ourselves. And ultimately, and most importantly, it puts us in conflict with God. Now, James states that the source of these conflicts is the evil desires at war within us, these passions. And the passions, he said, the word passion is the Greek word hedone, hedone. And that's where the word hedonism comes from. Hedonism is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. Uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. Welcome to our culture. Hedonism comes from selfishness, an idea completely contrary to God's word. And that's the same word, this pleasures, hedone, that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower. When he said, the seeds that fell among the thorns and represent those who hear the message, but it's drowned out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures, the hedone, of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And Paul says in Romans 6 that we become slaves of whatever we choose to obey. We can be slaves to sin and follow this worldly system, or we can choose to obey God. And obeying God leads to righteous living. Again, there's no middle ground. Isn't that great? John the Apostle, he writes, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. So, you know, the funny thing is if you ask most people, most people aren't going to consider themselves enemies of God, right? They're not going to consider themselves enemies of God. Many people probably even consider themselves friendly with God. You know, they go to church, they acknowledge who he is, they acknowledge his goodness and his power, his strength, his truthfulness, all of that. But acknowledging those things does not put you in a saving relationship with God. It doesn't. And they may be outwardly moral and seem like they do all the right things, you know, like we can say, like, they, they seem like good people, you know? And, and it's hard for us to, to realize that, that they are enemies of God because they're doing, or they seem to do all the right stuff on the outside. But as John MacArthur, he's a, a biblical scholar, he writes lots of commentaries, he writes that such people may well be searching for what they can get from God. His love, provision, security, hope, and other blessings. But they do not want God himself. They want a God of their own making to do their own bidding, tolerate their sin, and take them to heaven anyway. They do not want his forgiveness, his righteousness, or his lordship, and consequently do not really want him. So which camp do we fall into? Are we a friend of the world or are we a friend of God? You guys doing okay? 
All right, well, for the past 15 or 20 minutes or so, we've talked about what it looks like to be a friend of the world or what it's characterized by. And I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what it means to be a friend of God. Can we do that? Okay, so on your outlines, there should be five things on there. And I know I'm going to get somebody coming up to me afterwards and says, well, you didn't say this or this or this. I get that. It's not a comprehensive list by any means. Okay? You could fill it up with a lot of stuff. But this is just five that we're going to talk about today because I think it is important. Okay, number one is faith. Faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. And James identifies Abraham as a friend of God. And we read that earlier in James chapter 2, that Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Because of his faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves us and puts us in right standing with him. It's all about faith. And Paul says in Ephesians, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Number two, a friend of God is characterized by love. No surprise there, is it? Friend of God is characterized by love, and we all know that. You know, the funny thing is that people outside in the world, they look at Jesus and they look at the church and they don't really see the two. Like, they can say, I like Jesus, but I don't get the church because we're not known for our love. We're known for being judgmental. We're known for being hypocritical. All the stuff that we're against and... Sometimes we have a hard time living the life, and they see that, and, but we're to be known for our love. The Apostle John says that anyone who does not love does not know God. If you do not love, you do not know God, for God is love. Jesus identified the greatest commandment as this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is just as important, to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And we should talk, we need to be really careful not to cheapen what love is, too. Because you get a really distorted world when we start talking to other people. Love is an active decision. It's an active decision. You decide to love, you choose to love. And the world will tell you that it's just a feeling. You feel love, right? But it's not. You choose to love, and if you choose to love, the feelings will follow. Feelings follow actions, not the other way around. And some of us, especially in our society, we're so consumed in our feelings. How do we feel about stuff? You know, if I don't feel like doing something, I just, I'm not going to do it, right? I don't feel like loving you right now. I don't feel like doing what I know that you need because I just, I need to have my needs met. That's not godly love. And I love the definition that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians, that is the best description of love you could ever have, I think. But he says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Some of us need to take note about that one. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Isn't that great? Uh, That's great. That's God's love for us. 
That's the love we should have for one another. And I, I suppose I should say, you know, we have to be careful because we don't want to love somebody right into hell, right? When you're talking about this judgment versus love thing. There is a difference. We don't want to judge them, but we want to love them and tell them the truth that Jesus came and saved them and that there is a way that they can be free, that they can have life. Right? Amen. A friend of God is characterized by obedience. That's a word a lot of people don't like to hear, right? I'm independent. I want to do what I want. But Jesus himself said that you are my friends if you do what I command. And he said, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And, you know, looking back on the Old Testament, we see Saul, and God had told him to do something, but he thinks, you know, he's going to do what he wants. He makes an offering. He makes a sacrifice to God. You know, what a great thing to do. But he was rebuked by the prophet Samuel for that because he didn't do what God told him to do. And Samuel said, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. And obedience comes in a lot of different ways. I think a lot of us are good with the thou shalt nots, right? You know, we stay away from this, we don't do this. Yes, we're good. But what about all of the, you know, love your neighbor? What about when Jesus or God puts on your heart, you know, like I want you to go and touch this person because they're struggling? What about the times where he says, I want you to give money to this because I want to work in that, or I want you to show your love to this person? When we don't do that, that's, that's disobedience. It's doing things that we know that we should do. And just so you think I'm not getting up on my high horse, I have lots of struggles with that, and I failed with that time and time again. And, you know, I have to constantly seek God's forgiveness because, you know, like, God, I know. I missed an opportunity. I missed a chance. You wanted me to do this, and I didn't do it. And there's going to be a lot more. But he wants obedience, and he wants our hearts to go after him. So obedience. A friend of God is characterized by humility. Number four, we just read in the passage, James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Paul said in Philippians, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Look at others as better than yourselves. And everybody knows that Moses was a friend of God, right? He was a friend of God. God talked with him face to face. That was cool. But you know, Moses was a humble man. He was a man of humility. Numbers 12.3 even identifies him as a very humble man. He was the most humble man in, sorry, more humble than any other person on earth. More humble than any other person on earth. And on the funny side, that kind of has a a different or special meaning when you realize that Moses was the one who wrote the book. Come on, that's kind of funny. (laughs) And number five, a friend of God is characterized by, when you put all this stuff together, a friend of God is characterized by unity. And Jesus prayed to his Father in Gethsemane, I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. There's unity that comes from this. We're not going to be, we're not going to have a unity with the world because their desires are all about themselves. They're selfish, making me 
filling my needs, filling my wants, right? And that's going to be in conflict, and that's okay. But when we become a child of God, when we receive him as our Savior, it doesn't become about us anymore. It's not about us, but it's all about him. It's all about him. It's about him making his name known, making his glory known, shining his light, and living our lives in service to him. So all these little goofy things that we like to get all wrapped up about and offended by and whatever, you know, when we look at the big picture, that our purpose is to glorify God, all these little skirmishes and stuff, they, they really don't mean that much. These little disagreements you might have. We're going to have disagreements, sure, but our focus has got to be on God, making his name known and glorifying him in the way that we live. All the other stuff is secondary. So be in unity with one another and with God. And I love the picture in Acts chapter 2. Luke says that all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And that is just so cool because you realize in this picture it has completely stopped becoming about them, but they're looking for everybody else, the needs of others. And I'm not saying that we need to do this, and there is reasons not to do this exact model, but the heart behind it is amazing. Right? So what does friendship with God look like? I mentioned earlier about this picture that people had of, of God being up in the sky with a lightning bolt ready to blast you. Right? And, and on one hand, that, that's kind of funny. It is, right, Mary? Yes. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But on the other hand, it's really not because it, it hinders us in some ways from having a true relationship with him. And many of us who have grown up in church and even know that God is a God of relationship, that God is a God of love, we struggle to grasp that on a very practical level. We know God to be our loving father, right? We know that. But some of us have had fathers, earthly fathers, who are anything but loving. Some of our dads were cruel. Some of our dads were absent, either physically or emotionally. And some of our dads made us feel like we could never measure up no matter what we did. And on some level, we're still trying to get up to that level that we think that he's looking for, maybe subconsciously. And so even though we know that God is a God of love, it's hard for us to really grasp that truth on a very practical level because we've never really known that. And I, I've, I've shared this before in different ways, but, you know, for the first several years that I was a dad, I didn't have any real understanding of God's vision of fatherhood. You know, and, and I, I grew up in church. I didn't understand that my role was to be a teacher. I didn't understand it was to be an encourager or a guide. I was a provider. And you had better be thankful for what I provided you. That's how I was. I was the disciplinarian. I took a lot of pride in that. Because, you know, people talk about life in their homes and how it's so hard to get their kids to bed. (sighs) Not in my house. We had no problems at all because they went to bed when they were supposed to. They knew to keep their mouths shut. I didn't want to hear anything. It was bedtime. It was sleep time. And they were not going to ask for anything or get out of bed for any other reason than a very occasional 
occasional emergency trip to the bathroom because that should have been done before they got in bed. Right? Hopefully you guys aren't like I was. Okay? But my kids were, they were afraid of me. You know, and even for years after this, you know, I'm trying to change and be this other person and recognize that I'm failing in my role as a dad. But even years afterwards, you know, I would hear them They'd go to mom, and I'd hear them say, please don't tell dad when they did something. Don't tell dad, please, because they're worried that I was going to pound them. And I can't have any relationship with them like that. I was so focused on keeping them in line. And I think many of us, we have the same picture of God. And when we think of God as our father, we can't let go of this earthly image of our own dads who either consciously abuse their role or simply didn't comprehend what their role was supposed to be. And God isn't like that. He's not like that. God is love. God is love. And you know, when I talk about relationships, some of my best moments are the times when I'm with one of my boys now. And thankfully, we don't have that like we used to. But when I can probe into their hearts and we can share and experience life together, just one-on-one, father to son, it's me sharing my heart with them and, and trying to encourage them, trying to teach them how to be men and encouraging them to be all that God purposed them to be. You know, trying to help them endure through life struggles. Trying to be someone that they can lean on and seek support from and, and guide them. And I'm, I'll quickly confess again, you know, this is a great model, but I don't always do that. Right, Jacob? I don't. Because I'm not perfect like God is. But the more that I share my heart with them, my failures, as well as my successes, you know, the more that they begin to open up and they share with me. And we get to know each other better. And they begin to to know me and they know my heart and what makes me tick and what pleases me and I get to know that about them. And it's really cool seeing them grow up and I look at the men that they're becoming and I'm just proud of them. This wasn't supposed to happen. (laughs) But, you know, there will always be a father-to-son thing with them. In their adulthood, I'm going to be guiding them and I'm going to be there for them. And that will always be there, but there's relationship. You know, they're like, they're friends that we can just connect with. And like, even though there's a father to son thing, it's just, it's incredible. And, and I love that time with them. And that is relationship. That's what God is looking for, for relationship. You know, we often get this Christianity thing wrong. You get it wrong. Like, I have to read my Bible, you know? Got to read my scripture, spend time in the Word. I have to pray, give God all my requests. You know, and then some level we get the obedience part. But we often miss the heart behind it. We miss the heart behind it. God wants us to know Him. And when we read His Word, we get to understand a little more who He is. We understand his character. We understand what pleases him. And then it's a spirit working in us at that same time so that we can live this out. 
in relationship with him. It's, it's a two-way thing. And some of us strive so hard to do all the right things, and we don't get it. Relationship. And today we have a choice to make. Some of us have, may have never made that choice before. Some of us may have made that choice a long time ago and kind of veered away from that path. And some of us may be friends with God, pretty mature, but maybe God is pointing out some areas in our lives where we're kind of behaving like the world a little bit. You know? And that's, that's okay. We're going to have those times, but that's not what God wants. He wants you to. He wants to change you. He wants to make you all that you can be for his glory and for you. And so today we have a choice to make. Will we be, will we choose to be a friend of the world or will we choose to be a friend of God? Again, there's no middle ground. No middle ground. And, you know, you might be thinking, you know, it's too much to ask. I don't know that I can do that because I like this. I want all this other stuff. You know, it's, it's too much. It's not fair. And lucky for us, lucky for us, Jesus didn't say that when he had to come and die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right with God and have this relationship, this life with him. You know, praise God for that. Lucky for us, he didn't do that. And maybe you're ready and say, how do I initiate this? And the answer is you don't. You don't initiate it. God already did. He already did when Jesus died on the cross. All you have to do is believe in him. Repent, turn from your ways and follow him. He made a path so that we could have relationship with God. Through his death on the cross, we can become friends with God. And he died so that we might have life. So that we might know him. And Jesus said there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what he did for us. That's what he did for us. So will you trust him? Will you make him your Lord today? Believe in him. You know, no matter where you are, if this is all new to you, if you've heard this for for years. We're all at different stages. We're all trying to do this together. Amen? Y'all okay? Alright. Well, let's pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your gift of life. God, that Jesus died on the cross for us so that we could be friends with God, have relationship with you, that even though we messed up and even though we failed, that you made a way for us to be friends. And Father, I pray that, that as you are putting your finger on some different things in our lives and as we commit to, to be a friend of you, God, that you will empower us and enable us to live this life through your power and to have our actions reflect those who are friends of God. Father, I pray that there would be a new openness, a new, that you would maybe open eyes that have been shut either by the enemy or just by their own personal experiences. 
that we would realize how incredible of a gift this is, how incredible you are, and that we would see you as our great and loving God and have a relationship with you. So, Father, have your way in our hearts. Help us to live this life out like you want us to, to be open to your word, to be open to you speaking within our hearts. Make us attentive that we would have ears to hear what you want to say to us as you guide us through this, this life's journey. I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.